The reading today is from the book of Job, chapter 38, verses 1 through 21. I'll start again. Then the Lord answered Job out of, out of the whirlwind, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up, the loins, gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed bounds for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stopped. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused them to dawn, caused the dawn to know its place, so that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and it is dyed like a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home. Surely you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, you speak, and we listen. Speak then to our hearts, to our inner selves, to our outer ears, to and through each other, that we may hear and do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now Jim is a lot nicer than I am. I would have added some attitude between, behind God's word. And where exactly were you, Job? Now Job, as almost every single commentator will tell you, was not a patient man. Job protested loudly and consistently to everyone and directly to God, if I have done something wrong, just tell me and I will change, I will repent. The book of Job is a story that speaks of every generation and every individual all at the same time. Anyone who has known suffering. All suffering is unjust, but mass suffering is often met with blame and meaningless 
explanations from those who are not suffering. The name Job was not a proper, usual proper name within ancient Israel. So it could mean a person's proper name or it could represent all people, particularly people who suffer as Job did. In addition to Job, this person or this representation, there's another representation that is not included in our stories because they take up the other 36 chapters of Job and they're absolutely pointless to read. Not that scripture is pointless, but there are times when pointlessness is the point. Three friends. Were, who weren't really friends at all. They were actually accusers. They were pseudo-experts on one thing and one thing only, conventional wisdom. Well, this is the way it's always been done, Job. You suffer, therefore you're wrong, you've sinned, now you have to repent. Job said, no problem, show me. And I will, this is not arrogance. This is how faith was understood in the time of wisdom, in the time of Job. I will confess, if I, you can tell me what I did wrong, if you can't tell me, then I'm gonna ask the Lord God, would you please tell me? Because God is just, and God does not pass out blame as easily as these three people standing right in front of Job as he said, you. You are blaming me. I'll accept it. Give me the evidence and I will acknowledge it. Now Job represents, as I said, all who suffer, are treated unfairly, who are cast aside without being heard. Now the, the whole book of Job is probably a combination of parts. We want somebody to sit down and write a story from start to finish, but our scriptures do not do that. They represent stages. Job is a combination of possibly different stories, or maybe it was written from start to finish. I don't care either way. But it, was a, it is a wisdom writing. It is not a specific narrative of facts that happen in this particular order. It is addressing conventional wisdom and a challenge to conventional wisdom that suffering brings. Is your harsh reality recognized by those who do not have a harsh reality, who think, I do not suffer, therefore all is well? Eugene Peterson has this wonderful quote, and I don't know where it came from, but it was on a Facebook meme, and I love Eugene Peterson. He said, the biblical way to deal with suffering is to transform what is individual into something corporate. So perhaps one person is suffering, so the church comes along and says, we'll do this with you. Peterson says, and this is something David and I have experienced abroad, most cultures will come around you when you suffer, and they will spontaneously have expressions of compassion, tears, joining, tears, bringing friends who will cry with you, a communal lament. The community votes with its tears that the suffering may end, but we're gonna do this together. So in the story of Job, in this brief introduction, who are we? I can't say who are you because that sounds like a blame and I'm already saying don't blame 
Job says, don't blame. He didn't appreciate it for 36 chapters. What we heard read today was God's response to Job for 36 chapters say, where are you? I'm suffering. I'll take it. I will not abandon faith, though I have been advised to do so, because then my suffering will end. I refuse to abandon my, my faith, but God, where are you? And God opens up with what feels like absolute domination, but instead God uses creation to say, I have been around longer than you, and this picture is much larger than one individual or even one community, and things still move forward in a rhythmic pattern, and so will you. This incredible, immense response from God, and you only got 21 verses of it. I thought we should do the whole three chapters, but I thought maybe we should also have a bit of mercy. The part we didn't read, and I'm hoping you're already picking up your Bible if you thumb to chapter 42, is when I get to be snarky because Jim's not reading, God addresses those three accusers. Job, you've done something wrong. I am angry with you, Eliphar, and his two companions, because you haven't spoken about me, this is God speaking, not Job, you have not spoken about me correctly as did my servant Job. Now, if I'm Job, I'm going to take vindication right there. I just got to be called God's servant, but God wasn't finished. So now take your seven bulls and your seven rams and go to my servant Job and prepare an entirely burned offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you. And I, this is God speaking, I will act favorably by not making fools of you because you did not speak correctly as did my servant Job. With whom does God side? Conventional wisdom or the suffering? Job. God sides with the suffering just as Jesus showed us, who of course is not in this story, but neither are we, so we can fast forward. I propose that far too many, perhaps me, perhaps some of us, may practice the blaming exercises that the three accusers practiced against Job. Victims are blamed for being in the wrong place, for making a poor decision based on our values, our privilege, and of course, we blame because they haven't seen the future properly. If God draws near to victims, where are we? Our focus on this day, on seasons of creation, we are looking at oceans and water. In some ways, water is a great equalizer. Those without water, no matter their bank accounts or connections, become equal with everyone across the globe as they suffer Together, if water is scarce or non-existent, your other resources become moot. This lesson came home to me while living in Cameroon, West Africa. I could not have been more different than anyone else in our community. Besides the color of my skin and my nationality, both David and I owned a car, which was asked of us so that we could help transportation in a village on a mountain that only had one car. 
We had passports, nobody else did. We had a bank account, no one else did. It was tiny because we were mission co-workers, but it was huge for Cameroon. But we were all equal on one scale. None of us had running water. We all had to work to fetch and collect, and I got taught along the way how to do this. I learned to take my kitchen pots and put them underneath the eaves of the tin roof so that when the rain came, it was a rainy season most of the time, we could collect water. But it had been dry for far, far too long, and we were all down to virtually no water. And I was sitting in a class, um, and we were talking about the nuances of English pronunciations of this, that, and the other things, and at the exact same moment, we all froze because we heard it on the roof. One, two, three drips. And in a rainforest, the third drip is the introduction to rain. And I'm standing there, looking as we all, at the exact same moment, turn to the same door, because we needed to get outside to get our pots, to put them underneath the roof eaves to collect water. Water is a great equalizer. But so is a bank account. I owned a 55-gallon drum. It happened to be a storage drum. It happened to be what we packed all of our belongings as we moved to Cameroon, mostly books. And I had one, and it was empty. So I would collect water underneath the eaves, and I would put it into my plastic drum. And I had to ask myself when that water was particularly precious, Jane, what would you do if somebody came to your door and asked you for some water? And I did not like my answer at all. Can I just presume you could pretty much figure out what my answer would be? But God, I worked for it. I deserve this water. Hmm. God is good. A, nobody came and asked, so I never had to face my ugly answer, which I pray by God I would have changed to a nice answer. But God is even better than that. On the third day of my stored water, all of the mosquito larvae had completely polluted it. Like manna from heaven, you do not store when somebody else is in need. Water is without question a necessity of life. Those facing floods after hurricanes or a tsunami, surges, atmospheric rivers, exploding rivers will tell you a different story than the one that I just said because too much water is also a great equalizer. Everyone needs dry land, dry clothes, dry bedding, dry food, not enough water, or too much water makes everybody vulnerable and at risk. And because of sea risings, the vulnerable are even more vulnerable now. Island people live on, many live on atolls, and I believe as just an aside, I think I'm the only person that got at all correctly on Wordle almost instantly. <laughs> if not an atoll, then a small land mass surrounded by the ocean island peoples live, where the rhythm of the ocean is also the rhythm of daily life, the give and the take. And while we lived in Fiji, we even felt the interruption to this rhythm when France told French Polynesian that they were going to test a nuclear bomb 
deep in the ocean, it's safe. Now, my David was one of the protesters in Suva, and the comment was, if it's safe, please test your nuclear bomb in Paris. <laughs> Students said, no, we're not going to feel this immediate effect today. But when the poisoned dead fish come to our shores because of their bomb testing, we will know it very, very well. Now change the image. There's an earthquake in Japan or a volcano in Tonga. And across the Pacific Ocean comes the tsunami. The buildup of greenhouse gases that you and I participate in has a direct effect on our beautiful Pacific Ocean, the one that I love and all of the other oceans. Sea level rises affect all island nations and all nations with a coast in the water. And here's the opportunity for blame. Oh, well, they shouldn't build in the area where there's risk, we say, when we live on a mountain or a high cliff or far away from water. But if you have no choice economically, where you may build, where are you going to go? Where it is the least expensive. If you do not have a financial infrastructure that invites corporations to build, people will build wherever they can. And they are not the nations that are the carbon-emitting factory nations. They don't have the equipment, the air conditioner, the car to contribute to the carbon dioxide that is causing this blanket over our beautiful Earth. Now, tourists, we knew well. We had a car in Fiji, but this was before I understood what our car was doing, and there were no other options. Tourists who would come, visitors who would come to us both in Cameroon and Fiji and would leave their plastic rubbish for us to dispose of in places where there is no rubbish pickup or recycling. Why would you bring a plastic bottle to Cameroon or to Fiji? I have a cup that you can wash and reuse. Island, nations bordered by water with a prominent place walking into the water like Pakistan, about which we've heard a lot lately. Massive victims of the recent flooding. Over 1,300 people dead. How many millions had to move out and have no place to go? A third of the crops wiped out. Now, I assume you, like me, have, have heard the Pakistani minister, climate minister, Sherry Rema, speak to the issue of climate change devastating her country. And she's just speaking for her country. It also applies to many others. I heard her on NewsHour and then read her same comment because I couldn't drive and listen to Sherry and take notes at the exact same time. But then I was able to pick it up in the Washington Post and, and, and the Guardian. The climate minister, Sherry Rema, said global emissions target and reparations must be considered given the accelerated and relentless nature of climate catastrophes hitting countries such 
as Pakistan. Global warning, warming is the existential crisis facing the world. And she says Pakistan is ground zero. But there are a lot of countries saying we're ground zero as well. Yet we, Pakistan, she said, have contributed less than 1% to greenhouse gas emissions. There is so much loss and damage with so little contribution to the world's carbon footprint that the bargain made between the global north and the global, global south is not working. Following reading this article after I heard it on the radio, I decided I'd look at comments, which I rarely do. And this was so enlightening because the first 30, 40 comments were, my word, blame. They put the blame on Pakistan. Poor countries in general, poor government finances, misuse of resources, money given to the rich rather than to the poor, poor infrastructure, focusing on one place but not the other. Blaming the suffering seems so easy which is the point of the book of Job. Blame is a wonderful consequence of those removed from the situation who do not want any attention put on themselves. So they divert blame to another and do not reconsider their own behavior, which is why I love that, the final, the closing chapters of Job. You three, I'm not even listening to you. I may or may not answer your plea for mercy. It's all dependent on my servant, Job. According, I'm going to quote this one from the Washington Post, and Catherine Hayhoe put the same thing in her newsletter this week. According to the United Nations, more than 40% of the world's human population lives within 60 miles of a coast. Areas that will be hit hard by rising tides. And then the comment about the glaciers. Now, you and I were raised to think glaciers are eternal. Turns out, not so much, not now. Listen, you should read Catherine Hayhoe's book, Saving Us, about charting the ages through a glacier now that they can be entered because they are melting. A large glacier in Antarctica could rise sea level several feet, is disintegrating faster than predicted. It not only could, but it will raise sea levels. This from the Journal of Nature Geoscience. This is the Thwaites Glacier, also called the Doomsday Glacier, because it gives us an indication of what is to come. So not only do seas rise, but then what's going to come next will be drought when there's no more water resources. So let's bring this toward a close as I remind you of what you saw two months ago. A minister from the tiny island nation of Tuvalu, and this is from um, Funafuti. He looks silly, doesn't he? Except he's standing on land. And his point, I am speaking to you, the global north, from land that is now covered by the ocean. It is the reality, not only of Tuvalu, but Kiribati, Marshall Islands, all of Mic Micronesia, Fiji, the islands that you and I think of as places to go for a resort, 
People live there. They are letting us know in advance. Beware. This isn't about destroying us. This is about where are we going to go because of what you and I participate in is causing this to happen in their country. Janet kindly reminded me of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Our rubbish. Now we saw a patch of rubbish go by in Fiji. I think we were, yeah, we were on a, uh, yes. I don't believe it was the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, but it was the same theory because this was tourists' rubbish that they bring in just discarding things because they're on holiday, being taken out on barges to where? Maybe the ocean. I do not thank us for that. God's response to Job was illustrated through what? Logic? No, nature, creation, God's good creation. God still speaks to us through creation. And you show that here, right through this window, God's creation. We hear earth groan, how do we respond? Do you know that Bill McKibben wrote a commentary on Job? absolutely fantastic. In fact, it's the first time that I started putting words to my understanding of God's good creation. But McKibben's point is not, isn't this magnificent? His point was, we, you and I, we humans, we are not the center, but we treat ourselves as the center. We're actually the last created, which I used to think, oh, that makes us really good. Well, actually, it puts us at the bottom of the totem pole. We are not the center. Creation was built around us first. We are not the center. So in this speech, McKibben writes, God seems untroubled by the notion of a place where no human lives. God says they make it rain even though it has no human benefit. God makes wilderness bloom. What stronger way could there be to make the point, McKibben's writes, what more overpowering fact to rebut the notion that we are forever the center of all affairs. The first meaning of God's speech to Job is that we are part of the whole order of nation with the order of nation. We are simply a part of the order of creation. Job's response in chapter 42, his personal response is deep deep humility, not repentance, humility. Oh, I am but one part of creation. That might be exactly where we need to pick up our conversation on earth care. Now, on this celebration of our in-gathering, we celebrate our life and love among others, not just those of us seated here, not just you seated at home, assuming you're still seated, but with the trees, with the water, with the air, with the ground, we are who we have been waiting for. Amen.